Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Uh, all right, well, we finally made it. Here it is. It's the Decibel Geek Podcast. <laughs> uh, we're going to have some fun today. Oh, by the way, this is a show that we do every single week. We're never late. We're always on time. We're never late. We're never late? Never late. We plan to be. This was meant to be this way. Oh, are we already going? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were just talking. <laughs> All right, we've been trying really hard to get you this episode, by the way, you know, but we're glad it's finally here. It's one of my favorite things. We always, this one thing I just love more than just about anything, and that's Albums Unleashed. Yeah, we like we did uh, the Radio Sucks Radio Show last week, and that's a broad thing of playing music from all types of different bands. Right, that was so awesome. That's always awesome. We go from super broad thing to do to do something really niche, where we yeah. just take one album and we break it track by track, and we have a very special guest joining us today, and if... You've been listening lately, you know. Our guest is Anthony Corder from Tora Tora, and we're going to talk about Wild America today. This is one of one of the best albums I think I've ever heard. It's uh, Tora Tora was a band from Memphis in the early '90s, if you don't know. Yeah. And if you uh, to prime yourself for that, if you don't know a lot about Tora Tora, go on our YouTube page, and there's a really cool kind of little discussion of how they got started and early gigs and everything that Anthony did for us. You know, and, and not only that, you know, while you're checking it out on YouTube, go to decibelgeek.com, and the Meister has spent mm-hmm. some good time with Anthony, and he basically primed me to get ready to talk about yeah, this. Yeah, me too. It's an album I love, but, you know, that guy sat down with Anthony and did the review of the show and the whole deal, and if you want to know anything about Tora Tora, you know, other than this album, because that's what we're, we're focusing on today, right. that's the place to do it, because the Meister, he's the man. Um, so we got some business we want to take care of out of this, but uh, there's no commercial breaks during this episode. We're just going to get right into it, but we got to take care of some business first. And uh, I think the first thing we're going to do is the iTunes reviews. Yeah, man, because we love the iTunes reviews. iTunes is very, very important to podcasting because that's your main hub. That's where I guess most people would get it. You know, that's where I enjoy my podcasting from. And so to be in, in the good graces of iTunes, you know, for them to shine positively down upon us, we need those iTunes reviews, people. And, yeah. And, man, have you guys been delivering. We're going to show a couple of them right now. Um, first one, the title of it is Always Interesting, which, you know, we are, aren't we? You, At least. Well, I don't you know, know. Ask my wife. <laughs> and this one's from Hydra Man, and he says, Once you start to listen for a while, you feel like you know the podcasters. You feel like they're your buddies. Decibel Geek is a great example of that. Great job, guys. Keep up the good work. Five stars right there. See? That's Thanks, awesome. Hydra Man. He's our buddy. I yeah, like that. Absolutely. Every, we're all buddies in rock and roll. And then there was another one on there that said Decibel Geek made it a great Memorial Day, and that was from Mad at Midway. 
And it says, I don't have a Facebook page, but I want to say that I love the podcast and spent Memorial Day listening to the new episode and catching up on some prior episodes. Awesome show, guys. Thanks. And that's, uh, it says, uh, JB. Oh, it's from JB, a.k.a. the Motown drummer. That guy, a, no, he knows what's up. Two awesome reviews. And, you know, it, it seems like a small thing, but it means a whole lot to us guys. We really appreciate that feedback. Totally do. And another great thing while you're at iTunes, really the best thing you can do is just simply subscribe to the show. You know, the number of su- subscribers means a lot. Mm-hmm. And more importantly than that, why go through the hassle every week of typing in Decibel Geek? podcast well you could just have it delivered right to you every time yeah no matter what rest your fingers never miss out one day we're just going to spring a surprise episode on you guys and you're gonna be like we miss it why do we miss it because we didn't subscribe that's right there you go so don't don't be that guy okay and the uh other one of the other things we have to do is we got to talk about the amazon purchases for the past week yeah because you guys have really been digging it we've been getting great feedback from people saying they like to hear what's been bought on amazon so chris what we get on amazon this week okay a few of the things that were bought this week on our amazon click-through link if you don't know go to the amazon banner on decibelgeek.com just click that link do your shopping as normal and we get a kickback and we get this cool little report saying what you guys bought so some of the things that were bought was a uh, mini microphone for an Apple iPhone. Nice. A, maybe hey, somebody might be starting a podcast. Maybe. A uh, dual USB flash drive. And then some yeah, music. See, you need one of them, too. Somebody's out there starting a podcast. Also a digital Astro in-wall timer. I have no idea what that is. Well, everybody needs one of those, okay. obviously. I do? If okay. you want to travel in time, you need it. And then some of the music that was bought, the Blue Murder album was purchased. Oh, nice. We just played Blue Murder. That's right. Uh, My God Given Right by Halloween was purchased. Oh, hell yeah. Win Hands Down, the new Armored Saint, which we played last week, was purchased. Yeah. And uh, an album called Last of Our Kind by Hair of the Dog was purchased. Wait a minute. There's no Hair of the Dog album called Last of My Kind. There is. It's a. It's by the the uh, Irish folk band Hair of the Dog. Oh, wait a minute. Somebody's going to be really disappointed when they get their Amazon order in the mail. Well, the Irish folk band Hair of the Dog is appreciative of us right now, I guess. So. <laughs> Who knows? I may have to check it out. Maybe they're good. Yeah, I thanks, like some Irish stuff. Thanks to Ryan and John for uh, helping move some Scottish dance music. Yeah, and I checked the updated list um, this morning after I had put this list together, and uh, another copy of Rise had been purchased. Right on. Yeah, so if you're out there looking for Hair of the Dog, it's either it's the, out there. The, the debut album, self-titled, there's Rise and there's Ignite. Yeah, if it's anything else, it's an Irish folk band. There's no, yeah, there's no my Oh Danny O or nothing like that. <laughs> but let us know if it's any good. So that's awesome. I love it that we got some great friends out there that are helping contribute to the show by going through our Amazon link. So I want to talk about Daryl Albert. He's a longtime listener to the show, and he he loves Decibel Geek, and he's a friend of ours. So we wanted to turn you guys on to something cool. Since you're going to Amazon and looking for cool rock and roll stuff, we can point you right to it. It's called HK Collectibles. And like I said, Daryl's been a listener to the show, so we wanted to shine a spotlight on him. He's got all kinds of cool stuff in there, man. He's got, like, ticket stubs. If you collect ticket stubs, you've got to go check this out because he's got everything. Yeah. All the old school Ozzy and Motley Crue and Metallica and Priest. He's got some stuff from Priest on the Defenders of the Faith Tour. He's got 80s Van Halen tickets. He's The collection's pretty sweet. He's also got a lot of Kiss tickets on there from different tours. The one that I'm in particular interested in is a ticket from February of 83 on the Creatures of the Night Tour. So Vinnie Vincent era stuff there. Nice. That's, that's awesome. 
You know, one thing I saw in there that I thought was pretty cool was this big old giant 736-page book called Sonic Boom, The Impact of Led Zeppelin. He's got a few of those, and I might be grabbing up one of them for myself. It sounds That's good. pretty sweet. And something like that, if it, you know, you're going to love the book, and you could also use it to kill things. Yeah, if somebody says Zeppelin sucks and just hit him over the head <laughs> with a book, and you can pay tribute to Zeppelin while you read the book. I got 736 pages in 10 pounds that yeah. says they don't. You and know? see, and this book, this book doesn't cost nearly what Kiss's monster book cost either. So There you go. It's a deal. So go to decibelgeek.com. Check out all the awesome articles that our amazing writers are writing all the time while you're there. Click on that banner to take you to HK Collectibles. Anything you buy off Amazon, you go through our link, you're going to help us out. It Absolutely. doesn't It doesn't cost you a penny extra. You can actually trick other people that don't even like rock and roll into helping us out. It's a beautiful thing. That's true. You can buy a Spice Girl CD through it. I don't care. That's right, fine. Right, yeah. It all helps. I mean, all right. we're, we're going to talk about it, but... <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. I'll shame you for it, but, it'll, you know... You'll get a mention for sure. Sure. Okay, so last thing to get through are our favorite people of the week, the geeks of the week. These are yes. the people that shared on Facebook and retweeted on Twitter last week's Radio Sucks radio show our people if you're new to the show this is all you got to do if you like this episode share it on facebook retweet it on twitter from our original link and i'll i'll uh, record your name and i'll mention it on next week's show and you you get to be sort of famous yeah podcast famous that's right so our geeks of the week this week are sid minon dennis gamez mike blunt chris karam robin bennett brad kalmanson Derek novak justin a6 the Riff of the Day, Joe Royland, Todd Cunningham, Brent Walter, Cobras and Fire, Trevor McDougal, Brad Cannot, Paul Watson, Billy Hardaway, Mark Alden-Taylor, Shane Abair, Andrew Jacobs, David Glenn, Mike Stewart, Michael Bartley, Gino Ames, Sit and Spin with Joe, Andy Parker, Wayne Cross, Rob Webb, Music Mags and Wax, Michael Charles, Colin Francis, Podcasts are the Best, Paolo Tomas, Hoops, Andrew Hutto, The Rockin' Donkey, TJ Cullen, Armored Saint, retweeted nice nick rose rock music forever all over the podcast and kevin e williams those people are all kick-ass not just armored saint but every single oh. one of them especially armored saint that's true and everybody else hey i just got to do an interview with podcasts are the best andrew jacobs is awesome it was a really good interview i appreciate it yeah it's your turn now yeah i gotta i gotta get off my ass but yeah it is on the way but, uh, Speaking of getting off our asses, man, I think we need to get right to it because you guys are going to truly enjoy this. If you know Tora Tora, you love this album. If you don't know this album, you're about to find out something special. That's what we do here. We turn you on to something you might have missed out on, and you are going to freaking love this. Yeah, this is our chat with Anthony Quarter from Tora Tora about Wild America. Yeah! Butted heads. He was kind of like the super heavy guy, and I like doing acoustic and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like the hippie, you know, <laughs> cat of the group. And then when we got together, there was something cool that. Well, that's that's in my opinion what makes Wild America so good. Like yeah. I enjoyed Surprise Attack. It's a good album, and I and I've also listened to Revolution Day that came out much later, mm. the one that was shelved. Yeah. And it's good, too. But if I'm being honest, I think Wild America is you guys hitting your peak. Oh, man, I thanks. Agree. And it's playing-wise, songwriting-wise, production-wise. And Aaron and I have talked about this. We, don't, we, we do these albums Unleash things only if we both agree that we think it's a perfect album from start to finish. No bad songs at all. Oh, man. And we absolutely feel that way about this one. Wow, that's a huge compliment. Well, you know, and, and that was a trip when we first yeah. started talking about it because it's like, 
we talked about the different albums we can do and we talked about doing it with john karabi with the, the molly crew 94 and talked about doing slave to the grind with michael wagner yeah and this was one that just kind of popped up out of nowhere i think he played like, a song off of it or something yeah and it was and like, then we started talking a really good album he's like i know it is yeah like, this is one of them albums that we should do an albums unleashed on oh and man. it was cool how yeah. it all worked out that we're able to do that and here today. and i you know i teased it last week with uh our app or actually two weeks ago with the should have been a single episode that's why i asked you for what song you thought would be a, oh, a good yeah. single from this album and we played it and i had a lot of listener response of holy crap you know i remember this album i used to listen to this all the time and i had meant i had made the announcement that you were going to come on to do this so we have a lot of people that are excited to hear yeah. you talk about the making of this album oh man because and aaron and i both agree because like you know i doing my, my homework on this and there's not a super lot about this album online yeah. It, 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 it's just very bare bones information. So you're yeah. going to fill a lot of gaps in. Okay. One thing I found, which is the biggest crime of all, is that it only reached 134 on the Billboard charts. Yeah. yeah. That's unbelievable because, honestly, this this is an album I think should have easily been multi-platinum high up on the charts. Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Seriously. That's because nice of y'all to say th that. There's so many songs on this album that could have easily been radio hits. That yeah. you know, and it, it's it's strong material through the whole thing, and uh, thought we would just kind of go from track one to the end, okay, with you and, yeah. and get into how we you know we mentioned Ardent Ardent Studios. For those that don't know, you know Ardent Studios has a hell of a history on its own. Yeah, um, going all the way back to you know the uh, Sam and Dave, Isaac Hayes, Leon Russell. So you had a lot of soul music that was yeah. big there. Um, Led Zeppelin three was recorded at this studio, so. Um, <laughs> You know, and then also you've got James Taylor, ZZ Top, REM, George Thurgood, the Almond Brothers, Bob Dylan, Joe Walsh, Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, that's a that's a crazy list. So I mean, you guys going in there must have been like, oh my God, look at you know. I'm sure there was evidence of all these people. Oh when yeah, you went in. it was hallowed halls. Yeah, we were super intimidated, but there was something really magical about being a part of that culture. Mm -hmm. It was. Um, it was based in love of pursuit of knowledge and being creative. And John Fry was at the helm of it. He kind of created it. He started the studio in his grandmother's sewing room when he was about 14 years old. Wow. Uh, he ran it um, 48 years. Mm -hmm. We lost John in December. He was 69. Oh, really? His birthday would have been uh, New Year's Eve. Mm. Um, but... He just was the kind of person that always made you feel important. Mm -hmm. No matter what fire he was putting out or if he was on the phone with somebody and it was total chaos, you could walk in and he'd sit down and look at you like you're the most important person in the world. Right. And he was kind of a father figure to us. Um, every decision I ever made in my life about music, I had a conversation with him about it. Mm -hmm. If it was towards a band thing or if it was later in life as I kind of moved over into the business side of sure. music, whatever kind of crazy you know, job or whatever thing I was going into, I would always kind of have him as a springboard to go back and talk to. Right. So anyway, it was, I mean, the people you're naming off, I mean, we used to laugh. I would sit on my couch and call him and sit and think about the Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner were there back to back in like 91. Yeah. And they would just be walking around the halls with us and we would walk in and see them go, hey, what's going on? You know, there's Greg Almond. Okay. And then we'd walk on by <laughs> and we were like, well, this is just kind of going to be our life. These people are in here. They're right. Stevie Ray was in there one time, I remember. Oh, and wow. 
he had the doors shut. All the doors were shut, but he was sound, checking his amp or whatever, and it was, you could hear it like through the walls. He had it oh, on yeah. like 11. Yeah, he never played. And they were like, hey, you want to go in and say hey to him? I was like, no, nah, man, I, I don't want to interrupt the thing. You know, I'll catch him out when he walks out or something. And they ended up moving from Ardent over to Kiva, which is kind of like the House of Blues uh, franchise now that's here. Mm-hmm. It was his counterpart in Memphis. And so I missed my chance. I was oh. a huge Stevie Ray fan. Oh, me too. oh my God. I mean, I love that guy. Yeah. I got to meet Albert King. That was one. He was hanging around on Bill Street, and I got to meet him. And he just kind of looked at me like, you know, what do you want, you little, you know, long haired <laughs> rock and roll dude? What, why are you coming? I was like, man, I love you. You know, it's, you get starstruck, you know, when you see well, somebody sure. and you're thinking about yeah. the influence they've had. But uh, they were there. Um, I mean, it, it was. Everybody wanted to come there. There was something special about Ardent. I mean, it was a yeah. lot of people. ZZ Top had done all their Afterburner stuff, and that's how mm-hmm. we got hooked up with Joe Hardy. That kind of co-produced with Paul Eversall in the first one. But by the time we got to Wild America, this was a different mindset. Mm-hmm. Like, we had got some miles under us. We had experienced the road. We were college-age dudes doing what you do in college, except we were waking up somewhere different every day. Right. And... We had a ball. I mean, sure. we were freaking, it was like riding lightning, man. We were like, this is the craziest. I mean, it was that conversation, Keith and I looking at each other going, can you believe yeah, we're getting paid it. to do this? Yeah, yeah. we're going to go play music and get to play in front of a bunch of people tonight. Best job in the world. It was incredible. Um, so we come in off of um, about two years of touring. Walking She's Done Great. We put out Guilty as a second single. Phantom Rider came out, and it was kind of funny Phantom Rider had played a big part in us getting signed. It was on the first little To Rock To Roll EP. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a piano version of it. Oh, okay, yeah. Paul Eversoli played piano on it. So when we did it for uh, Surprise Attack, we had changed it, the arrangement a little bit. And by the time that one came out, we were feeling successful. We were playing in coliseums and stuff. Right. But the the song wasn't performing as well as we thought. We were like, man, this is the whole reason. This is the one that's going to bust you us out. this would yeah. be the big one. And it was kind of later in the, the life cycle of the record. And it wasn't that it didn't get a good response. It, it did really well for us. We we had a great ride on it. But we were thinking it was going to, you know, this is going to be the bigger one. So we kind of came off the tail end of that into, okay, what's next? Right. We've we're got to start thinking, are we going to do a fourth single? Or are we going in to do the studio? You know, what's going on? Are we going back to Memphis? And we really didn't want to go home. We were at the point where we were telling a <laughs> and we were like, if you'll keep giving us tour support, we don't want to go back. You know, and they said, okay, well, this is what we'll do. You can kind of write some and we'll keep doing your, your one-offs and kind of filling in. Um, but it was a, it was a time of kind of change for us we we ended up we switched management companies we went from loud and proud out of brooklyn new york to bill graham on the west coast oh okay did you get to talk to bill i didn't it was it was right after he passed away there was a guy named morty wiggins had taken over right um kind of in the capacity where he was and morty actually ended up going on to run a&m records after Mm -hmm. uh doing the management stuff Uh, that was a year you know a couple years later after us but anyway um we shifted management companies and we kind of, I feel kind of like y'all do that. We kind of had grown up a lot and we kind of came into our, our own. We kind of said, okay, we kind of know how to do this thing now. Mm-hmm. We really wanted to stretch out writing wise. We wrote a lot of songs for that record, probably 70 songs or something. For really? Wow. Yeah. And wow. we wrote it over, we came home in 90, 
the end of 90 or something and that next record didn't come out to 92 yeah so there was a big gap yeah and um so we kind of just went on an adventure we had um there was a jingle studio that was about a block away from ardent Mm -hmm. um that was owned by a guy named tanner he owned a bunch of real estate but it was kind of like a little commune it was a bunch of little pink houses okay they were pink on the outside and they still had this two inch glass in studio a studio b and all that they had an echo chamber upstairs there uh-huh. was a concrete room and they'd always stick me in there you know with candles lit and my headphones on and i had just <laughs> reverbed out you know and all that so i had like a little man cave in there but anyway we got real creative um we got to do our own pre-production we'd go over and, and <laughs> heist everything from ardent we'd go over and get all their mic cables or get a freaking <laughs> super expensive microphone and be oh we'll be back in just a minute you know and, and we'd plug it in and back then we were running on little Tascam machines and mm-hmm. whatever we could put together you know little eight track things and stuff like that so it was a super creative time um we got to work with john hampton who uh was incredible he was actually another one that we lost right within the same week of mm. John Fry this past Christmas. Um, incredible drummer, one of the most smartest. Between him and Joe Hardy, they were two of the smartest. They were so smart, they were like crazy. It was those kind of people, you know, you'd walk in, their hair sticking straight up. Yeah. They're like staring at the board and going, ah, you know, hey, I'm, <laughs> listen to what I just did. This is awesome. And uh, I remember uh, them having a fair light, which was a big deal back in the day yeah. it was a huge like i don't even know how expensive that's uh, it was. what uh, alice cooper used on dada the whole yeah thing with, the, with the drums and everything so he had used it a lot on the zz top stuff but i remember yeah, he had brought it in, in with yeah. us okay that was hardy now now we go to hampton he's kind of a drummer guy and that was the one thing i, I know i said this earlier about them being super creative but they really tried to get let you bring your own story to the table, not influence you, but they wanted to push you like creatively. So he would always come in, he'd walk in just randomly with some instrument, you mm-hmm. know, it, something that he brought it, whether it's percussion or it'd be random. I mean, it might be a tambourine or whatever, but he'd walk in or he'd come in with a keyboard mm-hmm. and say, today we're just going to do this. And he'd go jump on drums and I'd get on the thing. We'd start banging around and I'm like, you know, Hey, I kind of got this idea and he kind of worked you through it. Mm-hmm. It was like, pretty amazing that freedom that he would show you that you had within yourself you know to do these things pull things out of you so he helped a lot in that way but we went in and we actually split that room with a couple of our friends other bands so that it turned into like a freaking you know out of control bachelor <laughs> slash studio that was open all night uh so we had a bunch of adventures in there late night poker nights and you know going to see bands and dragging everybody back over for jam sessions and the guys from diets were in a band at that time called johnny gray mm-hmm. and we actually would set our stuff up in studio a two sets of drums three guitar amps two bass rigs and two pas and just face off to each other and like turn it as loud as it that would go been fun. oh my wow. god it was it was awesome <laughs> about a true battle of the band it was yeah. really fun and then to throw in the mix this was the most awesome thing was um about halfway through the process um, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of a dude named Eric Gales. Absolutely. Okay. He yeah. ended up splitting the B studio with mm-hmm. us. So he's in the pink house and then there's two other bands in there, you know, us and the other band. So he would come in and get in the mix with the amps. There was a guy mm-hmm. named, uh, Bob Jika that had created an amp in Memphis 
you know, that still, it didn't even have the covers on it or anything. It was just like tubes and supposedly it was the loudest, you know, whatever. So anyway, they started bringing little prototypes over. You know, they knew that Eric was there. Jimmy Bridges, the guy I told you, that he was another mm -hmm. great guitar player. And then Keith was in there. And they all had different rigs and, you know, stuff. So they would get in there and crank all those up, you know. And then we all wanted to get in there. Everybody wanted to make racket and start mm -hmm. hanging out and stuff. So anyway, we spent probably two years just writing songs, recording, getting in there, getting crazy with them. We built another bar, you know, the normal mm. practice room, rehearsal kind of hangout place where you're just going to, if you stayed and drank or whatever, you just crash air and then get up and go to work when you woke up, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, we came back and we just had a lot more stories to tell, mm. you know? I mean, when we were first starting, we were after chicks and, you know, getting drunk and chasing women. I mean, yeah, that was it. We were young. We were little, and but we hadn't really had any kind of experience outside of that as far as getting out and seeing the world. Right. And, and when walking shoes hit, that changed everything. I mean, it put us on the path to being able to play a lot of shows. Mm. Uh, we got really busy. And so we came back, and that's where Wild America came from. We just started thinking about it. We are like, man, we got to sit down and just take a breath and realize what just happened that yeah. was like crazy and yeah all these flashes are going through your mind of yeah. like all the things we've done from starting out in the middle of nowhere in pennsylvania six weeks before the record drops playing to our manager who was sitting at a ta <laughs> table by himself going what's the name of your album oh. you know to play in the cat the cat club in yeah. in manhattan oh, yeah. you know and going in and it's all industry people and everybody standing there with their arms crossed it's, and staring yeah, the whole it's, three and like okay these guys are from memphis what's going on you know it's a real it's a true culture shock because so, at that anyway. time there was a pretty good memphis scene wasn't there because that was man when the la scene was kind of petering out and i think the record industry was looking for different rock bands in other parts yeah. of the country yeah and it was like you guys and roxy blue and a couple other the bands. every mother's nightmare guys every they were kind of nashville and memphis connection yep. there was a band called thrust that i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that was skyline they ended up i think gene simmons or somebody had kind of got interested in them eric gales was huge um i'm trying to think of who else was out i mean there was a ton every weekend at the new daisy there was yeah three or four bands playing and they started having producer showcases, which got more industry people there, which gave more exposure, which drew more people. And they were all coming in. Memphis has always been that kind of place where it pulled the rural people. It was a gathering, you know, naturally a river city kind of place where people would come in. And that's what happened from the local scene. It was people from Arkansas. There's a guy named Tony Spinner. That mm -hmm. Man, he used to be on that locals only thing. Man, he was an incredible guitar player. I mean, he was great. He was on there. Um, there was a guy I was just talking to a minute ago named Bernard Desec. Mm -hmm. he, he was a great singer. He was kind of like a Queensryche vibe singer. You know, he was a different style than I was, but I always just looked up to him. I was like, how does this guy do it? It's a high and, register thing. Yeah. yeah, and he was kind of that, not opera, but more of kind of a formal singing style. And uh, I just told him on the phone, we hadn't talked to each other in probably 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I said, I remember going to your house and you like taking me over to the piano going through like, you know, breathing exercises or whatever because i was like man i don't know really know how to, I'm, what i'm doing <laughs> i'm just kind of going out yeah. yeah proper techniques i guess yeah. yeah but um so wild america the song was kind of just our tribute to the people we had gone to visit you know right it's kind of where that that one started it was just our 
anthem kind of thing. Well, you mentioned you know that guy having um, proper technique or whatever, but your vocals, man, I mean, you pull off some incredible vocals on this album, and in this song in particular, um, you know, there's a couple of times you do these ascending notes where you'll hold a note and you'll start going up and up and up with oh, it. Oh yeah. And yeah. how I mean, was how difficult was that, or did that just totally come natural to you at that time? It was just. I think I was listening to a lot of Aerosmith, and yeah, I tell you one th- one person even to this day that I love is um, Kicks. Yeah, Steve, yeah. Steve Whiteman. Man, yeah. he was one of our favorites. When we first did uh, Surprise Attack, we played five shows opening for Kicks. Mm-hmm. One of them was in Baltimore at Hammerjacks. I don't know if y'all yeah, ever was, heard oh that yeah, place. Oh yeah, that's fam- very famous. Dude, club. we played there with them, and it was the best. Yeah. One of the best memories of my life. Yeah. I mean, it was just the people were so cool, and the reason that they were cool to us is because we were there under them opening. Right. Yeah. So once we played there, we were kind of like brought into the circle. So when we went to Baltimore, we always had a freaking blowout. So I no, mean, no was, riots or anything. No riots. Okay. We did some crazy <laughs> uh, staying up all night and going to the radio station the next morning, kind of you know playing acoustic. Yeah. Drive time radio adventures where we're eating steaks and then mm-hmm. throwing them up the next morning on the way to the radio station and <laughs> drinking it's like would you think it would bad of me if i just take a nip off this jägermeister bottle to just go to the next thing that we're right. doing uh, just so i can knock the edge off you know kind of we were little you were pretty resilient back oh, in oh, you know you yeah. kind of bounce back you recover fast a lot quicker yeah, yeah. but that so, in that song um the title track I mean, is the song basically written about what you'd experienced on the road? Yeah, it was just an ode to our audience, man. It was what we were looking for. You kind of, you know, talking about being resilient and everything. I mean, uh, there's a lot of downtime on the road. You kind of live for that hour or 45 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it is that minute you get to be up there and share Yeah, because the rest of the day can be pretty dull. Yeah. Yeah. We were... We were, tried to stay busy. Our A&M was awesome. They helped us a lot with promotion and would always try to get us in with the interviews and mm-hmm. radio and all that if we, you know, if it was, could get there in time and all that stuff. But you're waiting between sound check and the show, you're like dying. You know, yeah. this is, you know, it's like the hurry up and wait. You're ready to get out yeah. there and do it and ready to start playing. see yeah. the people. We had kind of been through a couple of times through the surprise attack. So by the time we got to Wild America, it was kind of we were remembering people were seeing them more yeah, often. We'd yeah. kind of got our little route our down. Little we like, yeah. So that was pretty fun. Um, but that song is, when I listen to that, it's like it had to have been the natural selection for the first song on the album. Yeah. Yeah. And and for the opening song of, of yeah, the tour. That's a fantastic yeah. opening song. Well, good songs to open an album with. I mean, you got the title track there, and it's got such good punch, you know, such a good kick in the face to it. Yeah. That it's just an amazing way to start off this album.
we came off the road from opening for the cult. Yeah. Wow. And um, it was pretty awesome. I mean, we had, that was a big experience. We had been out, um, I think, on the surprise attack. We had done Dangerous Toys and L.A. Guns. That was one of our favorite tours. That's a great lineup. Dude, yeah. man. Wow. We got in so much trouble with those guys. <laughs> we c- couldn't ride on each other's buses. We got, yeah, like, they had to get us separated because we would, they would do bus call or something, and we'd all be, str- you know, strode out all over the place. And, um, but they're still some of the, I still, I talked to Jason. He came through with Broken Teeth, and I saw him. Yeah, one of his, like, seven bands. Yeah, 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 Watchtower, Broken guy, Teeth. He doesn't slow down at all. His voice, y'all, oh, my oh, God, is still so great. I probably hadn't, the, the, when I saw him, I probably hadn't seen him in 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. maybe. I mean, we I keep up with him like everybody else on social media and stuff, but I saw him. He came through Nashville, and he just said, it's it's boss of all, no ballads, and it's just going to melt your face off. And I was like, all right. And I went and just sat down and watched it, and his voice was so great. I mean, it was incredible. He's taking care of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was good. Well, he's one of the busiest guys in the business now. And I think he learned how to change with the times as far as the music business goes because I guess, you know, even if, even if you're in a relatively popular band, it's like it's – you have to get little dribs and drabs of income from different places. Yeah. So he'll have like six, seven projects going at a time. Yeah. And he probably makes a decent living that way. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy, man. There, I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs. And L.A. Guns, you were on the road with too. Yeah. That was that was pretty incredible. They were, <laughs> man. Were they getting along at the time. Yeah. <laughs> they were. Everybody was getting along. Which of their eighty-seven? This was were, during um, <laughs> was this Jane Ballad of Jane. Ballad, that's when they yeah. were at their peak. It yeah. was great. Yeah, I mean, we big, did. We went on a like a eight-week tour, and it was theaters like the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Yeah. But we did that identical kind of theater everywhere, like from you know, all the way to worked our way out west. We mm-hmm. went through Texas and. They were awesome. I mean, the very first night, I think we were somewhere in Ohio, maybe Dayton or somewhere, and they said, meet us in the bar, you know, or the road manager came in and said, hey, they wanted everybody to meet in the bar tonight, and we just walked in and just got hammered the very first night (laughs) talking to them, and they welcomed us on the road with them, and we didn't have any problems. We had a freaking incredible journey. They were were on a roll at that time, too. It was great. The audiences were awesome. They were super receptive, you know, to, and, uh, the dangerous toys guys were awesome. I mean, we loved them to death. They were, we kind of had the southern thing going, so mm-hmm. we kind of clicked right off the bat. A little bit of camaraderie yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. So it was that part of it was pretty awesome. So that's cool. So uh, let's go into track two with Amnesia, which was the one of the singles off the album. Yeah, love it. Um, this was co-written with Taylor Rhodes. Yeah. And uh, how does how does he come into the picture? Well, he's a Kicks connection. Oh, okay. So he, oh he yeah, had, he had written stuff for them. Yeah, right? and we we're huge fans of theirs. I mean, we used to play blow my fuse. Like That's a great every song. night before we go on stage, we love them, man. I mean, yeah. especially after watching them live and even till today, I saw them. We did uh 2008 at rock Loma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember this was 20 that. years later to us. I, it, it didn't even change. Like I was like, dude, his <laughs> voice was right on. Their show was incredible. I mean, it's super energy. Yeah. He still does the same thing. But um, we were just fans of theirs. Our our A and R guy Brian Huttenhauer had kind of done some research and found out about Taylor. Yeah. And we were coming to Nashville. We really didn't know anything about Music Row or 
what was going on as far as uh, that side of uh-huh. the industry, or even man the PROs and all that. We were signed to BMI, but I probably never even walked in the building until I moved here. Right. Um, but we had a chance to write with Taylor. We did. Um, we came up. I think the first time they let us stay in town, the second time they put us at like Hojo on 40 way out on the outskirts of town and said, you can only come in to do your writing session. Wow. <laughs> Cause we went to like exit in and yeah. all those places. I think Jimmy Jameson was playing oh, yeah? in town the first trip in with him. And we ended up staying at exit in and all the places, the uh, place I met you. Yeah. Out Elston place. Gold yeah. Rush. So, uh, anyway, we ended up, just coming into town, Taylor lived out, had a studio in his basement, lived out off of West End somewhere, I think, is where we were going yeah. at the time. But he was just super laid back. Um, he had just come off of writing um, Crying yeah, with Aerosmith. The Aerosmith song. So we were totally like in just awe. You know, we were like, wow, this yeah, is yeah, be, we'd love to write with this you. Is, <laughs> this is be a, a huge opportunity. And man, he like handled us with, with kid gloves. He was already kind of a seasoned yeah. person and we were just, we didn't really at the beginning of the tour thing we didn't take very well to writing out with outside people we had a guy that came down and wrote on uh, surprise attack um that we were kind of not very cool with the cat when he got there but we ended up realizing that something good was going to come out of so it. It was kind of a pride thing. I think it was. I think we were worried about if it was going to change our sound and who we were. Mm-hmm. We were like, man, we've been doing this the whole time. We know what we're doing, you know. And but we're once tour, we tour, got in there, the monkeys. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, when we got in there with him, though, we ended up writing "Guilty." Yeah. And that ended up being a single for That's us. So song, that was, yeah. I mean, once we realized he was just going to kind of enhance our mm-hmm. our direction, and then he was also going to strengthen our places where we're kind of weak as mm-hmm. far as just arrangements all the different elements of writing like right where you're going i mean it was like kind of a learning process and i think the the more you, that you had done that it it made you realize that you always kind of get a little grain of knowledge from whatever kind of experience it is if you go in it with the right frame mm-hmm. of mind even if it's something that's bad you find out something good about what you, you got going on something you're strong at so. right I think yeah, that thing kind of woke us up to that. And then when we realized we found somebody that we had a common thread with, we're like, we were like, man, this dude's doing kick stuff. We love the Aerosmith stuff. You know, that's right down our alley mm-hmm. of kind of our direction where we want to go this time. So we sat down and uh, we worked on that one. And he actually worked on two of the singles. Yeah. Uh, and Faith Healer and Faith Healer. Yeah. So that was, we were really proud of those. And he Absolutely. did two on... Uh, on the next, on the Revolution Day, he did that Shelter of the Rain. Oh, okay. I don't know if you remember that one or not. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, he was uh, he was great. He had a a really cool setup. It was pretty laid back uh, vibe at his house. He wasn't like kind of pushy, and mm-hmm. we just kind of let that flow kind of happen. Yeah. And we ended up getting two really things great. I mean, that we were really proud of. You know how the how would the uh, the gang vocal recording go? It went great. Yeah. Yeah. We had evolved. We that's, had, what, that, that's something of a bygone era. Like, you don't right, hear that. Yeah. In, bands don't do it anymore. Well, we invited all of our buddies in the studio and had a bunch of drinks. Yeah. Um, there was a place next door to Ardent called Molly's La Casita. I don't mm-hmm. know if y'all have ever been to Memphis. but if you, uh, Yeah, I have family down there. Well, if you go, you got to go in there. They got the best margaritas in the world. So they made probably a bucket of margaritas. And we got it to all the bartenders. We got the guys from Johnny Gray 
the Dots guys, they were in the jam room with us, and um, anybody and everybody was in the hallways. We just went kind of threw a party in the studio, and mm-hmm. that was. I think we ended up naming them the Jägermeisters. Mm-hmm. That's something. what it says on the CD. Yeah, yeah, that was all of our background <laughs> people. So that was pretty. It was a lot of fun. And the the song is the song basically about like an ex girlfriend trying to reel you back in. Yeah, I think man, they were. From A and M side of it, we were trying to find something that kind of that would lock in yeah. that kind of groove thing that Walk and Shoes did, and well, that's when we kind of sat down with it, where it kind of had it. not the I don't know not as much as like the the blues thing, but more the groove. Because when I listen to this album, I'm like Aaron and I are big fans of, and we've also noticed that um, unfairly, and I'm and like I, I love hair bands, I, I love that era, I love Poison, I love them all, but you guys for some reason got lumped in with a lot of those bands. Yeah. Remember when grunge came in, like oh Tor Tor, they're a hair band. Yeah. So and like people would start to dismiss you guys. Right. But like if you listen to this album, like there's no there's no I want action. There's not a lot of right. there's no sex stuff going on in the, yeah. on the in the lyrical side. This album's a lot deeper than a lot of those bands. Yeah. Well, and, and like I, is that a conscious effort that you guys made? Because I mean it would have been easy to write the, you know the fuck me suck me type stuff that was yeah. right. topping the charts. I'm so, sure yeah. some of that popped out in yeah. our session, you know, our writing sessions and some of the stuff that didn't didn't make the cut for the record but i think we did strive to improve our Mm -hmm. writing and i think that was another thing that was really key about getting involved with like taylor people that were kind of successful they kind of bring you to a different level Mm -hmm. as far as how you're approaching your ideas and how you're going to present them and i mean we were super you know i think we were harder on our critically of our stuff I don't know if harder than anybody, but I mean, I know that that was a big thing to Keith and I. We would sit and just for hours just bang our heads against each other and go, God, we're stuck on one freaking line, you know, and just, yeah. just go, yeah. I hate your guts. I'm leaving, you know, and then we'd go, okay, I'll be back in 30 minutes. I'm go have a beer and smoke a cigarette. We'll be back, you know, and figure it out. Um, but I think we really tried to be surprise attack. We kind of had to set a bar. Walking Shoes was pretty successful for us and we yeah. were like hey i want to let's bury that let's see if we can do something that's better 
you're out the top. And I think I think what you said too about the timing of Wild America had a lot to do with that 134 time and yeah. you know, thing that you were saying. It was kind of like it came out like right in the middle of like 92, right? As everything that grunge was washing everything right. away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Starting to change. Yeah. But the thing is though, like you guys got lumped in with the poisons and the warrants and everything. Which, like I said, nothing against those bands. I like them, too. Yeah. But when I listen to Tora Tora from back in those days, I think more Black Crows. I think more Tesla. Man, we love Tesla. Got, Tesla which Tesla guy, got man. thrown into that group also. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't for the cover of Signs, they would have gotten swept away, yeah. too. That, that saved them. The acoustic thing. Yeah. Yeah. But... I consider that more of the pack you guys ran in than it definitely. Know, we were listening. Like but Tora Tora was still good time rock and roll. It was yeah. as a, it, that makes it closer to something like maybe Boys that's the case. That yeah. it would be something depressing like Nirvana. Yeah, I mean you would never confuse Tora Tora with a grunge band. No. Right. Yeah, but it was more, in my opinion, more rootsy rock and roll yeah, music. Definitely bluesy. For we sure. definitely were listening to Tesla. They were huge. Yeah. I mean yeah. Jeff Keith, man, he's one of my. I mean, dude, his voice. He's awesome. I'm telling you, I freaking love that guy, man. He was one, um, that Eric Martin guy was a big yeah, one. Yeah. He was great. great. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a ton of them back then. I mean, I just that one just happened to pop in my head because you were talking about it. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of it. But Tesla was a big deal to us. Um, Black Crows, Chris, we actually played with them when they were Mr. Crow's Garden. Oh, wow. Like I'm not in the early days. Wow. It was at the Cotton Club in Atlanta. Wow. They and weren't even really known at that time. They said they were the nicest people in the world. We walked in and we were just trying to, you know, blow it in or whatever. And they were just, just telling us what it was going on. We're getting ready to go on the road, da da da, you know. And mm. as soon as they started playing, we're like, God. These dudes sound like Rolling Stones. They're like rootsy rock mm-hmm. and roll. What is this? You know, this yeah. is not like every, you know, every yeah. night you kind of hear the people you're playing with and you're like, okay, yeah, okay, that, what, that where that fits and this is where that fits. And not not comparison, but just kind of mm-hmm. a way to align them with their area. But we heard them, we're like, wow, what's that? And uh, Malcolm Riker, that DJ mm-hmm. I was telling you about from Memphis, he called us when Hard to Handle was coming out, I guess they had done a release to radio or something, and he said, oh my God, have you heard this band? They recut Otis Redding Hard to Handle, and it's going to freaking be a, you know, huge thing. They're going on tour with Aerosmith. And as soon as it came on, we went, oh my God, that's those guys we played with. They were telling us they were going on the road and, you know, getting ready. Uh, But they were super down to earth. They were great. And I listened to him a lot, man. He still... I mean, has a great soulful voice. I mean, mm-hmm. that dude is. Yeah, he sounds the same now. And he writes name. really interesting, like lyrics and stuff. He was really cool. Like he came from a total different, you know, perspective right. than yeah. anybody else that was writing at that time. I felt like anyway from all the other rock stuff I was listening to. Right. You know? Sure. Well, with the amnesia, um, I was watching the video for it earlier today. Oh yeah. And. uh you know, it's interesting the way it was filmed, but the thing that I took away from it was like when it, I remember seeing it when it came out on MTV and it was just another video with a rock band in it. But watching it at my age now and knowing we were about to talk to you, I'm watching it going, I'm like, God, they look like children. Yeah. Like they, you guys look so young and you look like high schoolers in the video. We were little. Um, <laughs> just like they look so young. Man, the, the Jeep that's on the front was my Jeep. Yeah. I drove it for like 13 years. 
I loved that thing, man. It was I had many adventures in that with a bunch of people. Um, but the building is the pink house. That was the mm -hmm. place that we did all our pre-production. Um, that was the setting. Um, we actually took some handheld video cameras and sh did that video, not the exact video, but a version of what we would like to do mm -hmm. and sent it to A&M. So we went to Molly's La Casita. We were spinning. It was almost connected to Ardent. I mean, we were getting to the point where we are just going to knock the brick wall out so we could just go over there and hang out and drink because we were there, all, you know, 24-7 at the studio. Um, so we went there. We went to all the places we could think of, key spots in town. Mm -hmm. And we submitted it to A&M. And this couple that lived in Seattle saw the video, and they said, we want to come shoot the video. And we're going to keep it this gorilla-style yeah. thing where you tote the camera around with you. And so they came in, and we decorated the jam room. And we got to do it at home. And we got to do it with the people we wanted to do. We invited all of our friends. We went to Rock 103 at the time. There was a guy named Zeke Logan mm -hmm. that was a, a rock DJ. And we asked him, we said, man, anybody that's got, like, kick-ass cars – we want them to show up for this video shoot. Can you announce it on the radio? Yeah. And man, yeah. he started just doing it <laughs> over and over for us. And uh, it's not there anymore. There was a, a an old Goldsmiths parking garage, mm -hmm. and we got uh, a license to get there and do it. And we told everybody, we said, show up at this garage. We're going to set up. And we really did all that stuff. The flatbeds coming together. And all that. We put all that stuff together, and they, the crews came in to help us get the PAs and all that set up. But <laughs> we threw a party, man, all day. And all those people that are in it, that are directing traffic, yeah. that's the Johnny Gray guys. I mean, these yeah. are all like some of our best friends, and they spent the whole video with us. We just went. So it's a real like, time capsule if you look at it. It is, yeah. man. The people riding in on the cars were the bartenders from Molly's that we've known forever. You know, that's friends awesome. With. Um, it was just an amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, we got Zeke on film, you know, doing this stuff on the radio for us. Um the jam room was the best. I mean, getting that captured on film. I mean, some of the late night parties and <laughs> poker games and all that shit that was going on in there. It was to have that to look back on just brings back so many great memories. I mean, you think of the time and the hours and all these songs were created yeah. in that room. You know, we were in there just, you know, banging stuff out. So it, yeah. was, it was a lot of fun. It was a, that was a, it was kind of a good depiction of, of oh, us yeah. i mean that one felt like the first one walking shoes was just overwhelming we didn't know what the hell was going on and we shot it at handy hall on bill street mm -hmm. and it was a great experience the director was awesome a m was great but we were just new and uh we did guilty and and phantom rider but that one was it was back home and mm -hmm. you know we were like okay this is our chance to kind of do it how we yeah how we see it and it, man, it was great. It That's was fun. Cool. So, uh, track three is Dead Man's Hand. Okay, so we wrote this one with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Stan Lynch. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. How do you end up getting hooked up with him? Yeah. Is well, he looking to work with other bands? It was through uh, through A and M. Okay. We uh, we actually had some crazy adventures in L A. As far as co writing, we went out to uh, Dick Wagner's house one time no kidding like the dick wagner yeah Alice we've had Cooper? him on the show twice are you serious? yeah we That's miss him guy. so much yeah, we, oh, man. oh man yeah yeah so we went out to his house uh wow. it was wild Is like that when he, he was living here no he lived out in california then it was um he like jumped up and went into like full concert 
performance when we met him it freaked us out we were like oh my god i mean it was so cool but we didn't realize like he was going to go into that mode we were yeah. like sitting in chairs next to each other and he was like kicking his legs up and had the music wide open and was jumping around you know turn around and hit the board and we're like what no in the world is going on wow so he was pretty wild experience but when we met stan something really cool clicked yeah it was and i didn't mean that like towards dick wagner i just meant it like as a writing experience it was super laid back yeah we were we would always stay in hollywood um at the uh the hollywood roosevelt mm-hmm. okay it was right around the corner from a&m so they could keep an eye on us mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. it was right across from the chinese theater place so i mean we were kind of right in the thick of it so they sent us out to like the uh the valley ventura mm-hmm. you know get out of the hollywood thing and so we go Minimized out. Minimized temptation for the for Yeah, the I guess guys. so. We were crazy, man. <laughs> we were like jumping off the cabana roofs in the swimming pool and all that kind of crazy crap. But um, anyway, we went out there to see him. And it was it was kind of interesting meeting him because he had done like the Don Henley stuff, you know, like the last mm-hmm. worthless evening and all this. And we were kind of wondering like what kind of vibe it was going to be. We ended up just laying on the floor playing records, man, listening to like Jimi Hendrix. He was like, what are y'all into? And it was like, it wasn't like, hey, we're here to do a writing session, and it's going to be like, okay, this is how it's going to go, and we're real serious. Not, I mean, it was like totally laid back. Let's just hang out and talk music. And man, yeah. from the very minute we got there, it was just like, this is going to freaking rock. Yeah. This is going to be cool. We're going to come up with something. And we kind of banged around on a lot of different ideas. We wrote a lot of, started a lot of songs and ideas, but when we ended up on the Dead Man's Hand thing, we were like, man, this is something really cool. We would kind of gotten a different like an open tuning and mm-hmm. I don't know. It was like, we just kind of, we went somewhere we hadn't gone before right. and it was him. It was like, we knew we were like, Hey, this is something different. And, uh, so we ended up working on uh dead man's hand. We worked on the lyrics. I think we were out there for like a week. So we ended up, we probably wrote four or five songs with him, but we started working on the lyrics to that. And he kind of just, spark something in us when you were talking about before when you were asking me about it our lyrics and stuff seem really intentional and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. he definitely brought that to the table to us once we had that meeting with him Mm -hmm. things changed as far as our approach right and another reason was because of the other song on the record nowhere to go but down that turned out to be one of our favorites that i still play to this day Mm -hmm. even if i pick that acoustic up right now i'd be man this is one of the songs i'm most proud of yeah we uh we love that we know those songs are special because of what happened when we went back to memphis with them mm-hmm. on uh dead man's hand we went back and bobby keys and jim price ended oh. up showing up at the studio through a and m bobby keys and they wrote jim price charted wrote the charts for it he didn't actually play he came in to just run the session uh-huh. they hadn't been in the studio together in like 20 years since like bitch or something for the stones yeah so they got back together in the studio so wow. we're like freaking out on that witnessing history yeah, yeah. they're doing that <laughs> jim dickinson jumped on the piano Jeez. he did he did takes on it all right so then those guys aren't even on the track that's on the album wow we ended up doing the memphis horns yeah i was gonna ask came you about in, that and the only reason they came about was we started thinking about how we were going to reproduce this song live. Mm-hmm. And we said, man, I think those other things are so busy. I don't know if we can get away with pulling this off 
where we're not going to miss because his parts were i want to find a track of that stuff i've been asking my bandmates i'm like does anybody have that version of the yeah because that would be awesome if i get it i'll send it to y'all and y'all can be the first ones to ever play it on Oh, okay. well, I'll hold you I, to that. Yeah, yeah I, w- I want to I want to see it happen. I, I asked him because it was something really special about it. But uh, Clarence McDonald ended up playing piano on it. Um, Jim Dickinson's takes are on there. I actually, we just went back to Memphis um, in April 26. We did a tribute concert to John Fry and John Hampton. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we played with Jen Blossoms and Big Star. Wow. Played an outdoor concert. And I got to go to the studio and get in the vault. Mm-hmm. And it was everybody. It was Big Star. It was all my brothers. It was whoever had been in there. Their stuff was in the closet, okay? Wow. And I went and picked out our tour tour stuff, and I opened it up, and I got to see all the notes that I'd never seen before that, like, the assistant engineers, like, don't use Anthony Scream in the third stop, you know, and things like that. And I'm like, I have never even knew that was an issue. What's going on? You know, but I, like, reached in, and it was kind of like being in a time capsule, yeah, you know? So I know somewhere in there are those versions oh, of those yeah. songs. So I, I know we can get access to them at yeah, some awesome. point. So, yeah. But anyway, that one was really special because it introduced us to the Memphis Horns. Yeah. Um, and we ended up becoming really, really close friends with them. played on the record with us there was a friend of mine that um he was a soul singer on bill street named james govan Mm -hmm. dude this guy was the best singer i've ever heard in my life he started out he was a drummer he was in a band called stone blue and when i met him he was probably like in his 40s or something 40s or something but he was about as big around as a string bean and he could sing like Otis Redding and Al Green stuff that would just kill you, man. When you got, you know, when you wanted to go like have some whiskey and just get into that frame of mind, this yeah. was a dude. So I brought him to the studio to get to meet the horns. You know, they already knew each other, but I wanted him to be there when they were mm-hmm. recording. And we knew it was something awesome going on from our side. of It was something that we would have never pictured ourselves doing. So we ended up doing pre-production and stuff with them. Mm-hmm. So they came to the Pink House to hang out. And we were running the charts or whatever and running through the songs. And they ended up sitting down in between takes and really talking to us about what it was like to go on the road with like Otis Redding and in the time, in the era that they were growing up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, dude, we would be in the car starving to death and be on the road and we were scared to pull over because, you know, of race issues. Yeah. 
So they kind of opened up to us like right off the bat. It was kind of like we felt like we had known them for a long time. And it was re- they were really funny. Like they would <laughs> they would go, we would do a couple takes, and they go, man, I need a I need a breath of fresh air. And they'd walk off, you know. And I was like, man, that's like third time that dude's going to get a breath. I want to get a breath of fresh air. What the hell are they doing out there? And so I went out, uh-huh. and they, man, they had a, like a little half pint in their pocket, you know. And they were back <laughs> out behind the pink house getting a little nip. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I, yeah, I want one of those. I was probably, I don't know, 22 or something. I don't know. But I just was enamored with them. I thought they were like the coolest shit I ever seen. And they were like, well, we're out. And I was like, well, man, get in that Jeep, man. There's a liquor store block from here. I'm, I'll take you. I love there. Let's, I'll get whatever y'all are getting. So I went in. I just thought I was a shit. You know, they said whatever they ordered. And I said, yeah, I'll have one of those too. And we got it. And from that point on, they would come by the rehearsal room. Wayne Jackson was a trumpet player. He'd show up. He drove a little red Miata. He'd pull up with no top on it and have like a little water bottle between his legs. And then I realized that ain't water. He's like <laughs> driving around with a, like a bottle of vodka between his legs. But anyway, we ended up becoming real close friends. Andrew was a sax player. And we ended up opening the Wild America Tour in Memphis at Mud Island with Roxy Blue and Wildside. Nice. Okay. That's a good lineup. It sold out. It was a record at Mud Island. And what we did is we traded out shows. The Memphis Horns had their 25th year anniversary at the Pyramid in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And they had everybody from Marshall Tucker to the Staple Singers to Carla Thomas and, you know, all the soul people. We were the only rock band. <laughs> okay, we're like heavy metal rock dudes, and they had like a seven-piece horn section, a B3, and all this stuff that we never played with. But we said, hey, if we come do that, we'll, we got to do two songs. We did Walking Shoes and Dead Man's Hand. And we said, if we do that, will y'all come play our show and do two songs with us? And they ended up coming with us. Oh, my God, y'all. Somebody shot a video. like a, Back then, it was the big shoulder yeah. harness, big thing. But they brought it and shot the Mud Island stuff the whole day. Like, oh, it nice. starts off with John, like, dropping a quarter and moon in the camera in the parking lot, you know, dropping his drawers. And it ends up with all of us backstage, and it's them, and we've got, like, bottles of vodka, and we're walking <laughs> around and just drinking and rendezvous sending barbecue, and we're just hugging each other. And, love. and I saw it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is like a time capsule, you know, of this day. We captured it. And... uh they ended up, they played on Dead Man's Hand, and then we had a song that, it didn't make the record, but it was a real slow blues song called Who Am I to Blame, and they ended up getting to take solos on it. Mm-hmm. And we had a friend of ours, Greg Redding, ended up playing B3, and he got he came out. But we made kind of a production out of it. It was kind of our hometown kickoff, and they were nice enough to do it. And we're still friends with, Wayne's back in Memphis now, yeah. you know, living on Mud Island or something now, so, but... They had a huge impact on us. And then, uh, you know, they ended up kind of transitioning this. They ended up playing on Nowhere to Go But Down right. on the end section of it. Mm-hmm. So we had a ball. We had a period of time where they really educated us, like about, we were talking when we first started this about the heritage of Memphis and music and all that. He kind of was that guy to me. He was kind of a mentor person that turned me on to. I don't know the importance of Arden, I guess, where John Fry and them had already kind of told us about the stuff, but it wasn't, it didn't really sink in. We we're kind of little kids and mm-hmm. wasn't getting it. We were so wrapped up in just trying to survive and do <laughs> our thing, you know. But they touched our lives really weird. I mean, it was a 
pointed us in a different direction, I guess, from meeting them. And uh, nowhere to go but down was nuts mm-hmm. because we met Tommy Burroughs was on this song. He was the world champion mandolin player when he was 14 years old. And he was probably a little bit older than us, so he was probably in his mid-20s or something. But when I met him for this, he did the mandolin. And then Peter Herka that plays with uh, Human Radio Mm -hmm. that's here now in Nashville, he played the fiddle on it. And uh, we heard this song, and we were like, man, when they played on it, we were like, this is so cool. I mean, Mm -hmm. it, it was like, I think to me, that was us. That song personifies. I think that was were. on that record. That was the one. And that one was also written with Stan. It was. Yeah. That was some like mellowed out Hawaiian smoke going on <laughs> on that one. I'm not kidding. We were like laying on the floor just listening to Jimi Hendrix and talking, and Stan started like strumming around, and mm-hmm. Keith started messing around, and the title kind of just came out and. I don't know, it was just the imagery, everything about the lyrics and everything. I just was like, man, this was the one, I think that was the one that we had to beat on the whole record is when we wrote that one. I was like, okay, that's. I don't think we're going to beat this one. When I saw you standing there right across the room Short on cash, long on glass She knew she found a fool And I won't deny Can't keep my I'm kind of biased on that one. Yeah. I still play it now, and I'm still super proud of it. It's one. a great song. I like es- it. Especially one. with starting out with just the gu- the guitar and you going together. It's pretty cool, and live people like singing it with me. It's yeah. got a good kind of sing-along chorus to it, so it's fun. That's good. So we went a little out of order, but that's okay. Okay, sorry no, about but that. Yeah, I'm jumping no, all over the place. No, but since Stan helped write both of those, that makes yeah. sense. So let's go to track four, which is As Time Goes By. And now now that I know that you are into Tesla, that you won't take this as an insult, this is the best Tesla song that Tesla never wrote and played. Man. See, that's, this, this was always the song that I thought. This should have been a single. When, when I explained to my wife who wow, was that's coming funny. over here on Thursday night, I, that was the song I played for. Yeah. I was like, this is the one the wife's going to really think, like. Oh, man. I think it this song would have done really well at radio. Yeah, oh, I think man. so, too. That's pretty yeah, awesome. So this, and if, my if, wife if even I likes was, this one. She's yeah, not a rock fan at all. If I was going to pick the single, it would have been And she heard one, that. Man. She's like, that's really good. What yeah. is that? And I'm like, it's Dora Tora, but I'm like, it never got released on radio. Well, we, this was one of those stories where Hampton mm-hmm. brought a keyboard into the jam room one day. And he said, man, let's go somewhere totally different. And I'm not like a great piano player. My mom played by ear. And 
just I could chord well enough to write songs, mm -hmm. but it did take you somewhere different. Like the chords were inverted different ways, mm -hmm. just as we were kind of messing around. And I remember Hampton being on the drums and me sitting there and trying mm -hmm. to work our way through it. And Keith looking at his hands going, oh, my God, what kind of freaking chord is this? You know, what are we doing? <laughs> but uh, it was one, it it kind of was a work in progress. And we kind of banged on this idea for a little while. And then all of a sudden it just clicked one day. Like Hampton walked in and we were like, man, I think we got we got something we can mess with in pre-production. And mm -hmm. we cut it with Hampton. And we actually had a guy named Sir Arthur Payson that ended up coming in mm -hmm. at the very end of our project. Hampton had moved on to go do Gin Blossoms. Right. It was, he was doing the one, the huge record that, um, I can't remember the song, Hey Jealousy. And yeah, it was a big hit. Found Out About You. Found Out About You, yeah. Yeah. So Arthur Payson was assigned to us through, he had done Rat, Mitch Malloy. Okay. Which, Mitch and Mitch and Tora Tora, we were all managed by the same guy. Okay. From uh, Loud and Proud, it was and it was the Prente winds Brothers. Up living here, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> we met Mitch. We met Sheriff. him at the. He's Sebastian a great Boston. singer. That dude is. He's a good dude, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was us. Cool. It was Mitch was on their Overkill, us White Line. Nice. That was under their management team. So. What a group. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. It was wild. But um, Overkill's like, how'd we get here? Yeah. <laughs> well, man, they had, uh, our management had Club Lemours in yeah. Brooklyn. Oh, There's yeah. a video on YouTube of you guys. Oh, man. It was, we went store. there. That was our first trip to New York, and we went, and we would rehearse there in the daytime, and on the weekends, we'd open up for whoever was coming through. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty wild. But um, anyway, um, I, the reason I was talking about Sir Arthur Payson is he came back and did a remix of this song mm -hmm. so he kind of took it a little bit of a different direction than we had it at first um they did some different um overdubs and stuff but um overall i think man the essence of it was hampton The thing on this song that that gets me that I think really ties it together 
is yes, the grunge era was coming in, but the, this was still the era of flashy guitar solos. The fact, and, the, and this is a repeating trend on this album, you guys had a you guys had a smart mixture of hard rock sound, but you would also throw an acoustic guitar in on a lot of these songs, which a lot of bands would ignore that that dynamic. Yeah, and it would make it would make a song sound a little two dimensional. The way you guys would add like an acoustic guitar part just for little taste things here will make all the difference in a song. And like on this one, this this song was begging for a giant flashy guitar solo. Yeah. But you guys went and did a very smart thing. You did just an acoustic solo with just hitting the root notes of the melody yeah. line. And I think it makes the song that much better. Yeah. That was Keith and, and Hampton and, and uh, Arthur Payson, actually. Yeah, I've done some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think that acoustic thing was Keith kind of growing. Mm-hmm. He wanted to... He had a lot of ideas, man. We were all trying to grow as writers and stuff, and we started figuring out in like pre-production how you could fit these things in, these ideas that you had in your head. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, man, I hear something kind of different. Um, and I think the walking shoes thing kind of spread in. It bled over, I guess is what I could say. Right. Into him saying, hey, I want to try this. I want to do something more than this because he did have like a screaming solo for that one. Well, yeah, I mean, and then like, and there's other stuff on this album where he's clearly he's letting it rip, but yeah, but the, which tells you he's more than capable of doing that stuff. Yeah. But I, that's what I think was made it so smart is like the restraint. It's knowing what not to play sometimes. It's definitely hooky. I yeah, know that we talked about it a lot. It kept showing back up at the end, and, and I was. I was reading reviews online for the album on Amazon today, oh, man. and like one of the like and I and the Tesla thing had already come into my mind because there's times where you're listening and like God, this sounds just like a Tesla song. Oh man! And uh, That's one a of big another guys. one of the reviews said something like uh, this song needed to be on Tesla's Psychotic Supper because it's the best oh, song man, they ever man. wrote. Oh. So I was like, I know I'm not alone in thinking that, you know, and it's it's meant purely as a compliment. Yeah, because well, we respect them a lot. We think a lot of them. They're, we're big fans of theirs so. okay so we'll go to track 5 which is Lay Your Money Down awesome poor old man came from Mississippi ain't nothing on his mind but a cheap fifth of whiskey playing his guitar down into the city working on the streets just to make a to me it was a based on towards a story from my granddad he was friends with a guy named mississippi john hurt i don't know if y'all are familiar with him or not but he had a really unique finger picking style Mm -hmm. he was a sharecropper he lived down in delta mississippi uh near um avalon mississippi and valley hill area um and my granddad knew him and he became famous in like 30s 
when uh, people were going through and finding the blues players and stuff, they had found him. He cut a couple of tracks, and he was pretty famous. Well, he kind of went off in obscurity. Mm. And in the 60s, somebody found him again, and he became the you know folk festival tours and everything became relevant again. And his style was super cool. I, I still think he's in like some kind of open tuning, but my granddad made my uncle and aunts. They both played guitar. He made him learn his songs in standard tuning. Mm-hmm. So they're doing the bass rhythm and lead melody with their fingers. Mm-hmm. And when I would watch them, it just blows my mind. When I was little, they were like, hey, sit down. And I'd got, you know, well enough to do like a chord or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But I didn't learn that style and now i'm kicking myself i sit down with them my aunt's probably 10 years older than me and she'll sit down and start doing it i'm like man why didn't i freaking (laughs) pay attention when i was little that's so freaking badass man it's awesome but it was kind of an ode to him yeah um and we spent a ton of time on bill street i mean i've closed those freaking places down Mm -hmm. every night that if i was at home um and we just wanted to have something of that element you know represented on this record um something that was kind of a tip to my granddad you know a tip of the hat to him he was not musical but his whole family was he had uh, four children they were all musically inclined Mm -hmm. and he just loved it you know he would sing and kind of hum and holler and stuff like that on the porch and Mm -hmm. have a good time but and dance but he was more of an influence on me than i ever realized until i was later in life you know that i was like wow that him playing those old records and stuff really had an impact on me later on so that was kind of where that one came from and uh we actually played this one for the first time in a very long time at the tribute oh yeah in april it was a lot of fun to revisit it cool we try to do a lot of the stuff off this record for hampton oh really so it was uh it was a lot of fun to visit that one I do hear uh, hear a Aerosmith influence. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. I actually heard a rumor that Steven Tyler listened to this record one time. Oh really? In A and M. I'm serious. He was in my A and R guy's office, and he said I played a couple of your tracks for him. Oh nice! I think this might have been one of them. I'm not sure. Yeah, there's a there's a I can definitely hear the influence there. I love Steven Tyler, man. Yeah, he's one of my all time favorites. I could tell you grew up listening to those guys. Um, So let's go to track six which is shattered the main riff on this song is monstrous this this was told keith man that i'm telling you he had this he came in and i mean man patrick and john really played a groove on this thing too they're good This was all you guys as musicians. That's what makes the song. As I I grew up a guitar player, and 
I can appreciate musicianship, and that's the thing. Like the songs are not only good, but the way you guys execute them. I mean, like like I said, we hear you know, and we we talked about this with Slave to the Grind when we talked to Michael Wagoner. There's certain albums where you'll hear a band playing, and it just it almost sounds like liquid because they're oh, just man, they've right. come together to the best level. The flow, yeah. That's the way you guys sound. Well, man, I know this. John, and he was put in more time than anybody, our drummer. I mean, he got where he was locked in on a drum machine. He -hmm. kept a click track with him. When we started out in the studio, I remember him like standing up, knocking his drums over and stuff because of a click track, you know, because he was like, dude, he said, he goes, I hate this damn thing. He was throwing his sticks everywhere, you know, knocking holes in the wall. And he got disciplined and he put in so many damn hours he would show up at our that pink house he would be there before anybody we'd all show up hung over and you know beat up tail and we'd walk in and he'd be sitting there with his freaking headphones on beating the shit out of those things and it was doing us grooves on that record no. and he toured with it he traveled with it he freaking turned into the damn metrodome i mean the guy freaking loved it um but on these songs patrick and John played a really pivotal part in putting our songs together. They are, we, Keith and I get talked to a lot because we were kind of the main writers and stuff, but their parts were more important almost than what we were doing. They laid the bottom end down. They got in and locked a groove together. Awesome. They worked on it. The whole album has got such a good groove to it. They would sit down and man go over every spot. Right. I mean, it was like, man, we're going to do this over. We're going to do this over. We're going to look at it. We're going to go back. Let's do one more take. I got it. You know, mm-hmm. they contributed a lot. I mean, everybody kind of on this one started contributing in the writing process. Yeah. So they played a big part of it. Keith would come in with riffs and stuff. And then I'd say, okay, I could think I got an idea. I'm going to go wander off in the you know freaking echo chamber up there and start thinking of something. And they would sit down and lay the groove down. Mm-hmm. And by the time, you know, we got to pre-production time. It was like, dude, this is getting locked in. And Hampton was a drummer by trade. So he had a huge influence on John and Patrick as far as like our groove section. Mm-hmm. He was like, dude, man, I can lock you guys in, you know, like no other. We're going to sit down and we'll, I'll walk you through the arrangements and everything. But anyway, the, I kind of think the story of it was we had kind of expectations of things that were going to happen and how they were going to play out and stuff. And the line in there about sometimes things aren't always what they seem. I remember, you know, putting songs together and lyrics and stuff, talking about it, how everything had happened. We went through um, a long period of writing, and we were wondering, like, where the end of the tunnel was. Mm. You know, we started wondering. We're like, man, we've been doing this a long time, and... We were still trying to play out of town and stuff. Um, But I think it just came out as like a way for us to make it a positive experience. Mm -hmm. Like, man, we said, let's just get this out. Keith came in with the riff, and we just knew right away. We were like, we're doing this one's going on the record no matter what. We're fighting for it. And uh, we still love playing it. It must have been awesome to play live. It was. We still do it. I mean, we only do maybe a couple of one-offs a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't even do any shows last year. That's why this last one was so special, is we wanted to go back and do something for John Fry and John Hampton. And um, we didn't do Shattered that time. 
maybe we'll get it in the next set. Yeah, when you're playing here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah we got to get a Nashville show. Yeah, yeah, that would be crazy. We should we should work on getting that set up. We need to just invade the rock and roll residency one night. That would be cool to see. <laughs> Not gonna get any complaints here. Uh, so track seven is "Dirty Little Secrets." This is a sleazier, bluesier track. Yeah, this kind of always reminded me of like a LA Guns kind of song. Yeah. They definitely had influence on us. All those guys did. Man, y'all were talking about, and I don't mean to get off no. subject, but Wild America, the intro and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that influence from that was from being with the cult and stuff. Yeah. And it was that period of time. I don't know, man. There was something about being in your hometown, mm. in a small town, and you're kind of hearing all the stuff, you know, of what people are thinking yeah. there's still all that kind of stuff going on you know and that was where the kind of the idea of this came up was it was like you know people talking about the band and what was going on and where we were with the record label and what's taking so long with the record you know mm -hmm. i don't know i think we were pretty transparent man in our lyrics of where we were i think this is a, like an awesome as a project kind of a great picture mm -hmm. where we were keys guitar there's acoustic on it again. Yeah, this also and has a licks. good mix of those things. And uh, so. that was something that was pretty intentional that he was working on. working on these lines and John Hampton talking to me about like the B verse parts you know and sitting there going over it's like what are you saying right there and I'm like I don't even really know we gotta <laughs> go back can we sit in and you and I go back and rework this thing and they were just always like super gracious like we'd let you sit down and kind of go back through and mm -hmm. you know work on your parts and I don't know he had a way of just making a song come to life and I remember him on this one in particular working with us, man, on phrasings and how we wanted the song to work, what our keys parts were going to work. We were in a pretty unique situation. We were signed a production deal with Ardent, so anytime there was like free time in the studio outside of, you know, our block of time that we we're doing the album, we could mm -hmm. go in and kind of work on pre-production stuff. So we had the ability to go in and have time with Hampton in the setting and... I don't know. It was like kind of working on your craft, I guess, where you kind of got to where you were at home. I mean, we had crazy times, trust me, in there. There was, you know, tape outlines of people that just passed out <laughs> with a cigarette in their hand. And you'd walk in the next day and go, yeah, that was you. That's the ashtray right there where your hand was laying. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It yeah. was a super atmosphere with Hampton. It was great. Right. Track eight is Faith Healer, as we mentioned, was another one co-written with Taylor Rhodes. And this one was released as a single with a video. Yeah. It was oh. a big production. I mean, that was kind of the, probably the biggest one. This one also, in my opinion, should have been much bigger than it was because it, it has, you can't ask for a catchier chorus. Walking with your eyes closed down a dead end street. You think you're never coming back it's when your heart begins to bleed. Yeah. Wandering in circles in your 
worked on this one a lot with there is definitely that um aerosmith vibe yeah like the guitar even feels like it you know when mm-hmm. it's starting out on the beginning of it it's got that vibe it's like if, if aerosmith would have came up out of the salt <laughs> yeah That's the oh man southern I like that. Aerosmith. yeah southern fried aerosmith <laughs> i like sure. i like that but no, that that's one that I'm really proud of. And we did a lot of. It was a big production. That video was. That was probably one of the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. We did. Um, I think the guy's name was um, Sam Bear. Was the director. Samuel Bear, yeah. So went on to do with Green Day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we did that out in L.A. Um, I don't know. I still love the song. Um, we hadn't played that one in a really long time. Yeah. To be honest with you. But um, it was one of our ones I was most proud of. I thought the lyrics were great. Working with Taylor was just incredible. I mean, even to this day, I think back on it, I'm like, man, that was. I kind of, and after looking over his resume, I kind of almost view him as like a 90s version of Desmond Child. Yeah. Know, like exactly. a song doctor. Yeah, yeah he was. Like, knows how to write really catchy hooks. And, yeah. But, you know, and that's a special talent. It's you know, not everybody can come up with radio hooks like that. Yeah, you know, he's super laid back too. It's a, it's easy, you know. You can tell if you walk in and it's going to be a forced mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it was never felt like that with him. Yeah, you know, when you walked in, it was really casual. And um, anyway, yeah, that's one that we're real. But real I like proud of. a lot of these songs. You know, would have been they would have. I think they should have been hits at the time. But also, there's songs that I listen to in hindsight, and I'm like, well, this could have been released in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, you know, because they, they have that timeless-type yeah. quality. This one, in my opinion, still sounds great, but this sounded like a song that would have been released on radio at that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess just because of the changing tides of the industry. I think that's what it was, too. Because it's, there's no reason that it shouldn't have been a hit, because it had well, every, every ingredient you want. Songs. Yeah. I think it went from like super produced things to strip down. Right. When when that happened, when that shift happened, it was like, man, this is the over, you know. Now it's too polished. Yeah, too slick. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. But in my opinion, if you make something sound as good as possible, what's wrong with that? That's you know? it, man. We're still <laughs> proud of it. I mean, I this whole record is something that we still think is some of our best stuff. It's a I'm special telling, album. Yeah. And then track nine, which might be my favorite song on the whole album, which is Cold Fever. Oh, yeah. Man, Man, it's a hard rocker. This was one that was kind of a Van Halen-ish feel. This song kicks ass. Oh, thanks, man. Y'all don't know how freaking long me and Keith banged heads on this. I remember having a little tiny eight-track Tascam recorder 
in a bedroom at his house in like suburbia, mm-hmm. Memphis. And we just played and played and played and played and played this thing until the the tape was slowing down. <laughs> like we were like, we were getting to the point to where we got to finish this freaking song because the tape's going to break. <laughs> we got to do something. We've gone over and over and changed the lines and it was so fun. And man, playing this one live was freaking oh, like, get, off, get out of the way. Gifted man, it was so smooth. It's in there, man. And it's like, in the pocket. It's fun. This is the one when he came up with the riff. You must have been like, okay, yeah, we have something. Yeah. And then, the, like, I mentioned this in the notes I was making when I was listening to it. It's just, it's an up tempo song with a shuffle beat. Yeah. And a lot of bands tried this at this time, but it was not always successful. It was very yeah. hard to pull off a good song with a shuffle beat. Yeah. But this one does. Yeah, that was John. He shuffled. He was great, Em. Mm-hmm. He really worked. He worked hard on it. Um, we just loved... This song was fun. This was one of the later ones mm-hmm. in the project. And we were trying a bunch of different styles of everything from, like, super bluesy things to... This one just popped out. And it yeah. was like, all of a sudden, we were like, oh, my God, I want this one to work. We got to figure out a way to get this one. Yeah. And as soon as we kind of messed around with it at the rehearsal room, we were mm-hmm. like, okay... This one's gonna end up flying. We think it's gonna be okay. So yeah, it was fun. And as I mentioned earlier, like you can hear a band with the chemistry of a band working at full force. This song in particular. Yeah. Oh man, I'm I mean, glad you, you like that one. Yeah, you I'd can hear like you guys too. are completely on the same page. Yeah, hitting on all cylinders yeah. on this. One. We had a good time. This one, it was fun recording it. It was just, it was fun playing it live. Man, it was that's one that we haven't played on. I think the last gig we did, we may have done it, and that was in 2013 or 14. Yeah. 2013. We didn't do 2014. So. And we went over Nowhere to Go But Down already, and then the album wraps up with City of Kings. Oh, yeah. What, what are your memories of creating this song? Oh, my God. This is it, man. Okay, this is the pinnacle of rising up from the ashes of Surprise Attack, mm-hmm. period. This was like just balls to the wall. The story of this song is hilarious because we refer in the lyrics to sleep on the measle pillow. Mm-hmm. Okay. We were in a Staten Island apartment in the basement of these people's house when we first started touring as Tortora. Uh, I mean, not as Tortora, but at first surprise attack. And we had probably been gone, I don't know how long, a few months. 
mm-hmm. staying based out of there, and we were going to like Boston and shoot over Baltimore and then down to DC, and you know, that was our little hub, I guess. And uh, it was Al and Candy were the people; they were friends of our managers, and they had this place. There were seven of us. We took the four band guys, and we took three of our crew guys as our <laughs> our best friends were our crew guys. We, right. So we all traveled in a fifteen passenger van. And so, man, we've just been humping it and beating it and just, I mean, we're just, there's one bed in the place, you know, and everybody else is sleeping on air mattresses. We're on the floor, you know, we're walking out and the, and the little kids in the neighborhood are like, what do you think, you freaking Bon Jovi or something? <laughs> you know, they're going off on us. They're flipping us off. As a matter of fact, we do. <laughs> I mean, they were just giving us a hard time. But anyway, we're close to the end. We're starting to see that, you know, this thing's going to get momentum. We're going to get a chance to run home for a second and kind of catch our breath and tell our families about all this crazy shit we've been doing. And, uh, so we get to like a day before we're leaving and something's wrong. Somebody's sick. And we start looking around and we're like, man, Hey, uh, Kurt's not looking too good. He's not feeling too good. Something's going on. And he was like (laughs) in isolation on like a, air mattress you know like laying over there in the corner and we're like i don't know man he's not moving he's kind of pale something's wrong what is it and we found out he's got the measles nice oh, wow. all right we're headed back in the van okay everybody in the whole group hates kurt because he's gonna get to fly home he's got a, like a two-hour flight like a 22-hour ride everybody's Damn, walking by the kicking the kicking, <laughs> kicking the air mattress going thanks kurt great job man but uh that adventure together, mm-hmm. that experience was like nobody can put it into words. Was that probably about six or eight weeks of us just balls to the wall? We'd drive out in the middle of freaking nowhere and played it for five people and get hammered. And then we had a tour manager that somehow or another would corral all of us, you know, crazy idiots in. And mm-hmm. we'd come back and get in, you know, early in the morning and get up and take off the next spot the next day yeah and uh but anyway that city of kings was kind of about that mm-hmm. adventure and it the emotion and the how powerful it is and aggressive and all that shit was everything that was going on at that time we yeah. were just like on freaking high adrenaline like we had never been in new york mm-hmm. never traveled our a and r guy actually drove in the van with us 
for 20 hours or however long it was from Memphis. He just said, I just want to see your eyes, see the skyline <laughs> of New York the very first time when you drive in. And we drove in and we saw it and then we went to Staten Island. Like we went, swerved out, you know. Yeah. Like, hey, it's New York. Yeah. Oh, you know, Staten Island, yeah. So, <laughs> not that we weren't, you know, thankful to have that, but it was kind of like we were ready to dive in. I mean, it was, yeah. that was the time when you kind of were ready. We felt like we had something really awesome. Yeah. And we were little and we were kind of full of piss and vinegar and we were sure. like, man, we want to go do something awesome. We were kind of like, had three of our friends and we were kind of like a little band of Vikings. We were like, mm-hmm. let's go conquer. You know, let's yeah. go out and go try to do something awesome. Right. And we went out and we got to meet so many awesome people and spend time with them and just we loved being with everybody they'd have to drag us out of every place we went because we wanted to stay and hang out and talk and we kind of had the mindset of we couldn't believe it happened mm-hmm. and we knew that it could go away at any second so you knew to enjoy it while we it was just there. said fuck it let's go for it yeah man. i want to just have a ball All right. and if we're gonna go out then mm-hmm. let's don't have any regrets about right. we missed anything so i don't know i think that attitude between all of us kind of served us well we all remained friends we it never got to a point where i mean we trust me we fought freaking more than sure you do with your siblings but you do become a family spending mm. that much time together in close quarters right and uh it was i think it it helped us as we grew up and grew older and everything recognize how important that time together was mm-hmm. and how special the experience was we were like man we got to go do something that most people dream about. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was heavy, man. It was pretty cool. We've all remained friends. I mean, when the tour tour thing was kind of coming to an end, you know, we did what anybody did. We were panicking. We were like, you know, what the hell are we gonna do? Mm-hmm. Um, Keith was getting ready to have a son, and he was kind of debating, you know, if he would go back on the road or not. He was like, I know I'm under the project. I'm worried about, you know, the element of just being away right and missing something important which i get that now i've got three children and i know that feeling yeah uh at the time we were little kids we didn't understand that he was the only one married and we were kind of going hey what's going on yeah Yeah, yeah, what do you mean you're not going you're going man we're kidnapping you you're gonna play dad now yeah Yeah. but (laughs) it wasn't it never really got kind of to a a bad point i just know that was something that's heavy you know if we'd be hanging out talking it was something that would come up and I don't know. I think everything kind of played out like it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. He was kind of in that mindset. Brian Huttenhauer, who had signed us, had signed uh, Extreme and Soundgarden and us. Hmm. So he was getting courted by Interscope to right. leave A&M. A&M had sold out to Polygram, which they weren't a small... I mean, they weren't a small independent anyway. They sold for I don't know how much money, but... Um, we weren't an independent anymore. We'd been taken over by Polygram, and then which I guess turned into Universal or whatever. Yeah, you know, which turned into blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything's All consolidating, but um, things were changing. It was a a shift, and things always change. I mean, life's yeah. a series of adjustments. Everybody knows that. But I think it landed when it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't. We never got ugly with each other. We were all kind of, you know, lifestyle-wise. I was probably freaking peeking out having a ball mm-hmm. when we knew that maybe revolution day wasn't going to come out we were like call everybody you know call the horns call everybody let's get them in the studio and get this stuff on tape yeah. before they come in and say hey we're closing the session out you know or whatever it was and uh that guy that was on bill street the james govan mm-hmm. guy 
he was the first person I went to. I drove to Bill Street, walked in, went to a booth. He always had chicks hanging around him. He was like, he would <laughs> well, always be sitting sing there like, like that. Yeah, he yeah. would always have a couple of chicks hanging. But um, I just went over to him and I said, "Man, James, what am I going to do? I'm thinking my record deal might be disappearing." He goes, "Man, you a singer? You just going to get you another band? You going to, <laughs> you know?" And uh, just tried to be encouraging. You know, he had been through it. If, the waves a few times and i think he knew i was worried you know i was freaking out i was young i was little mm. i was probably 24 25 and i was like man i've been a singer my whole life i'm freaking the hell out you know what am i gonna do and he was kind of like a i don't know a voice of reason that kind of just settled you down and said hey man you know you know what you're doing mm -hmm. you know how to sing you know how to put your songs together arranging and you've got contacts and you've got pickers that want to play with you and opportunities to write. And yeah. I don't remember what we said. We got wasted. But it, it was something <laughs> to that effect where I calmed down enough. But he told you life is going to continue. It's going to go on, man. Yeah. It was kind of, I don't know, a good way to wrap it up. Yeah. Amazing experience. And it's been great talking to it. Yeah, I was hoping we could help stir a few of the memories of back in the day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This. And you also... Know, and, the, and this is fantastic, too, because it's it's been a, you know, a good many years now since this album's come out. But what we found is that, you know, through doing the Decibel Geek podcast, we get in a lot of communication with people that are rock and rollers from all over the world. And as Chris and I agree, and we found out a lot of listeners agree, this is one of those albums that's kind of like a perfect storm where it all comes together and it's so good. Oh, where man, it may not you. have got the attention it deserved originally when it came out, but all these years later, people are starting to appreciate it for what it was, and it, it is. It's one of my favorite rock albums of all time. Well, man, thank y'all yeah. so much for letting me come and talk about it. Oh, I appreciate we, your the time. Honor, the honor is ours, yeah, and uh, totally. we'd love to have you back sometime if you're up for it. I'm in, man. Just let me know. We'll go over Surprise Attack or Revolution Day. That sounds fun to me. Thanks Be for doing fun. this for us. Awesome, man. Y'all have a great one. All right, so there you have it. There's our talk, our Torah Torah Wild America talk. Yeah, How if, cool was that? If you're not convinced to go out and purchase that album, then I don't know what to tell you. Absolutely. <laughs> and Wild America, of course, is on Amazon. And if you go through our link at decibelgeek.com, you're going to help us out. And why not? We turned you on to it, right? Yeah, I, I'm truly appreciative of Anthony's time because he came over here and he was armed with plenty of stories, and we were happy to, to hear them all. And how cool was he? Super so nice. down-to-earth cool guy. Yeah, we, we definitely want to have him back on again. And, you know, just like with Dick Wagner, with a lot of other people, we're going to find an excuse to get him to come back on. Right. And maybe sometimes, if you got any ideas, you can help us out. Absolutely. Give us good excuses to get some of these guys back on the show. He helped me on the Should Have Been a Single show, so perfect. Totally. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, we're good for this week. All right. Well, we'll have, of course, more Decibel Geek for you. We promise to be on time next week. We love you guys. See you <laughs> then. You know
Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 